G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. If you eat a diet of entirely, you know, greasy snack foods, chocolate cake, you're not going to live as long as if you eat a lot of broccoli. But our bodies are coded for. Did you say broccoli? I, forget it. I'm going to take the chocolate cake, and it's the same with investing. That. The, the, the good stories, the sexy stuff is, is all grounded in the excitement of beating uh, out others and beating the market. Whereas this very almost it's like a Zen thing of don't you know breathe deeply, don't try to outperform and you'll actually be a lot wealthier. That's the irony. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. But you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Patrick Geddes. Now, Patrick is the co-founder and former CEO of Aperio Group, a customer indexing firm that managed over $42 billion in public equities by the end of 2020. With a heavy emphasis on tax loss harvesting, a practice that is actually really utilized in my home country of Australia, which I'm sure we're going to get into in a little bit. Uh, but Aperio has been one of the very few investment firms in the US to focus on after-tax returns. Formerly, Patrick has been the research director and CFO of Morningstar 
Morningstar, and he's now the author of the Transparent Investing, his new book, which is called Transparent Investing, which was published in January of 2022. I'm really excited and pumped to have him on the show today to share his incredible insight and knowledge, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Patrick. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? I'm doing very well. Yourself? Oh, look, Friday afternoon, can't be better. It's uh, St. Patrick's Day, depending on when, when you're listening to this. And when we, <laughs> I know this will be launched in a, in a couple of weeks' time, but yeah, it is St. Patty's Day. So uh, looking forward to maybe a, a, a cheeky Guinness this afternoon uh, after we, we knock off work. So Very good. With that being said, can you rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid? Uh, believe it or not, as uh, hokey as it sounds, I was a shine boy. My father mm. helped me build a little kit and I maybe made a couple dollars. It was not a, a greatly successful venture, but uh, that was my first uh, earned money ever. Nice. What was your relationship like growing up with money, um, be, you know, coming from a shoeshiner? So um, my family was not focused on things financial. My parents met in divinity school of all places. So mm. I didn't have a lot of uh, preconceived notions about it. And in fact, didn't get interested in investing or finance until after I'd finished college. So I was already in my early 20s. And walk us through this, this, the journey. Obviously, you're, I mentioned in the introduction, you've yep. been the head and founder of a big, big company that's $42 yep. billion, But yep. there's got to be a story before that. There's got to be like a, you know, a, a leading down the path of entrepreneurship. So I worked uh, for a few years after college and then went and uh, got an MBA in finance. And the thing that really started shifting me was I spent five years working um, as a, a financial analyst for a big oil company internationally, and then got the job at Morningstar, where I was their first research director. And that was where I first got to apply some of the, the, the tools I'd learned uh, at the oil company around after-tax risk-adjusted cash flows, which that's a really common thing to do in the, in the corporate world. You, big corporations are famous or infamous uh, as it were, for for that kind of tax optimization. Then when I got over the investment world, I learned people were basically ignoring it. I was just sort of baffled at that. And then started realizing after I left Morningstar that the industry in the US is very focused on what's going to make it the most revenue, not necessarily what's going to make its clients keep the most money. Mm. So how did I become an entrepreneur after leaving Morningstar? It wasn't so much I had that burning drive or, or knew uh, this was a great money-making opportunity. I kind of stumbled into awfully good fortune. What I did know was I, I couldn't work at a place where I had to lie as part of the job. And I looked around at the financial services industry, and I, I, I love the investment world. It's fascinating. But I realized that would eliminate about 99% of the companies out there. And so if you're going to tell the truth, uh, you – unfortunately, in many cases, need to start your own company. And, and so uh, uh, my co-founder, who is an entrepreneur and did have sort of strategic vision, I didn't have either of those pieces. I had the, the <laughs> tech and, the, and the, the number crunching side. So it was a good pair because either of us alone was worth a heck of a lot less than uh, what we were worth together. That's awesome. And when did that when did you step away from that, that company? That was uh, uh, 1999. And then uh, we were sold in 2021. And I still have a, a part-time consulting relationship, but I'm 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 not the CEO anymore. I've I've really stepped away for the most part. That's great. And so, what are you now focused on today? Obviously, we mentioned your new book yep. that's just come out. Um, are you taking the lessons learned in your incredible history of of, of investing and, and applying it in the book today for folks to break it down into a easy or easy bite-sized pieces for for them to consume? 
Um, yes, it's it's not it's it's based on my experience with watching how the investment industry sells product. And and one one of the points I always make is when you hear the concept investment advice, the very first thing you need to think about is what is someone trying to sell me? What are the economic incentives? And unfortunately, the the right answer for the vast majority of people is so boring that it's really bad for clickbait if you're in the uh, financial media. It's really bad for sales if you're in the financial services industry. So my my focus is now on a kind of crusade to get investors to wake up and smell the coffee that um, you need to be not cynical, but you need to be really wary in all the investment advice out there because when you look at the numbers, the the efforts to beat the market or time the market are pretty awful. We're all really bad at that. We, we investment professionals are not good at it, and the vast majority of individuals are really bad at it. So it's it's kind of a downer message, but it's also very promising in that on average you're going to make a lot more money with a very boring approach of like buying a bunch of index funds and don't ever trade. <laughs> Well, don't they always say it's like if someone had a hundred thousand dollars and didn't touch it in an index fund for thirty years, you'd, yep. you'd be you'd be better off than all the human exactly. instincts that, that it, we it, make. It, <laughs> you, you just captured a huge tongue in my book. One, one of the great uh, my great heroes uh, of investing is uh, not a famous investor, a woman by the name of Grace Groner, who lived to be over a hundred years old. She was born in nineteen oh nine and died in twenty ten, as you described. She bought three shares of the stock of the company where she was working in, I think it was 1935, and held it for 75 years until she died. And the people, she paid $180, and the people around her actually thought she was impoverished. They would bring her food. That $180 grew to $7.2 million, mm. which she gave to her college uh, just outside of Chicago. So the, the uh, moral of that story isn't. Uh, about her research and insights, it's that investing behavior is really what makes you wealthy. But that just sounds so counterintuitive because there's a presumption that you need to be very smart and quantitatively sophisticated. And and I I've lived for decades in that that quant math, uh, very sophisticated number crunching world. But but realized how much of investing is about the psychology and it. It's one of those great um, examples of it's very simple, but it's not easy. Kind of like the analogy I use in the book a lot is the temptation of really unhealthy food makes it incredibly hard for us as humans to eat well. Mm. It's not that it's poorly understood. If you eat a diet of entirely you know, greasy snack foods, chocolate cake, you're not going to live as long as if you eat a lot of broccoli. But our bodies are coded for did you say broccoli? I, I, forget it. I'm going to take the chocolate cake. And it's the same with investing that the 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 good stories, the sexy stuff um, is, is all grounded in the excitement of beating uh, out others and beating the market. Whereas this very almost it's like a Zen thing of don't you know breathe deeply, don't try to outperform and you'll actually be a lot wealthier. That's the irony. It sounds so um you know kind of new agey and and or 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 uh, you know, theo- theo- woo woo thank you or or theologically 
high-minded, but it's, it's, uh, I find it a fascinating example of how often in life does humility make you a lot richer? Mm. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting, and I don't have any gray hairs yet. Well, I don't think I do, but you know, not as many as I'm, uh, not as, I'm 64, so uh, you've got right. ways to go. But, but, but you do get the sense that, you know, you, you, let's, let's boil it down, like that, you know, recessions and things of that nature are driven by humans' decisions. Yep. Right. Look at yep. look at SVB. Sure. Right. Yep. I don't necessarily know if, and I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm not a yep. okay, but they made an investment, poor decision. Yep. That 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 led on a run on the bank, and now they're where they are. Like it's, we're all just a cumulative. You know, our choices that we make as as, as investors, as as fund managers, all that sort of stuff. Will ultimately make or break us, and we hope that we make the right bets. So let's dive a little bit more into that because sure. I'm, I'm I'm really sure. fascinated because I do be- I have the same sort of probably feelings or subconscious feelings that yep. you know we'll talk ourselves into a recession or we'll talk ourselves out of a recession or yep. whatever you yep. want to yep. talk about. So maybe I don't even know where to start here because I'm sure, sure. You're, you're the expert. Sure. So, so where, where sure. would you start? Yeah, I would start with what. Um, the the field of research that's now known as behavioral finance, which is basically combining psychology and all of finance, but particularly investing. And the old models from uh, when I was in graduate school uh, decades ago were always presumed what's called the rational actor. And we're not rational actors. We're we're live, warm-blooded creatures, and, and emotions aren't a part of us, they are, uh, and, and we have to incorporate all those things. So the problem is that we end up making those bad decisions you were talking about because of the biases that are basically a function of evolution. So for me, the, and there, there are a bunch of these, there's one called the loss aversion, where people freak out at losing about two to three times more intensely than the same amount of win. So like if if I'm up 10%, that makes me happy. If I'm down 10%, that makes me seriously miserable. And the same, like up 30 is great. Down 30 is like, you know, I start wondering if I'm going to survive and, and just go into a panic. And again, this is, is evolutionary. It's not like our fault. It's the, you know, what's the fault in our star. It's the fault of our evolutionary uh, origins of our species. The, 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 the biases that I think are the most interesting and kind of amusing, they're, they're two very closely related ones. One is called the illusion of control, which again, this sounds very woo-woo. Doesn't it sound like a Zen lesson where people assume we can control things that are in fact random and out of our control. And you can look at, you know, creation myths from all cultures are about people looking at the natural world and seeing planets moving around in seasons. And naturally you assume that you do something that affects outcome, like why so many cultures have rituals around the winter solstice, because if the days keep getting shorter and shorter, we're all going to die. And that mindset applies to investing in that it's actually a lot more random than anyone wants to admit. The second bias you gather is very closely related is called overconfidence, where people presume a much, much higher ability uh, in investment skill than we actually have. And that applies to professionals and individuals. In fact, what, one of the uh, bits of research I particularly enjoy is there's a gender difference on the overconfidence side that on average, women are slightly better investors than men. Hmm. 
And it's their women are terrible at financial forecasting, as are men. So all all of us. The reason women are a little better, it's not that they're smarter, it's that they're missing something harmful that we men bring, which is men are much worse at the overconfidence side. So neither men nor women know what's going on, but um, as men, we presume we do have influence and control. I saw a great uh, little tidbit of research, uh, somebody uh, positing the question, okay, so if you're a... um, a man, you should invest like a woman. If you're a woman, you should invest like what? There is a group of people that are that's better than women. You know who it is? Mm-mm. Dead people. <laughs> uh, a, a brokerage firm did pro- provided some research on all the accounts that had been closed because someone had died and no one was trading or doing anything. There wasn't a tr- trustee or a custodian. Those got the highest returns because no one was presuming they knew how to time. They just sat there and compounded. And I, that's such a great example of the point in my book, which is it's it's so counterintuitive, but the data so strongly support this. What's you know, that's why it's called passive investing. And that's why it bothers people. It just sounds like you're sitting on the sideline. Dull. And that's oh, it's incredibly dull. I mean, it's hard to hard to get people excited about this idea. I've been I've been trying to do this with with the book and it's so boring. Mm. So, so where do you start then in terms of trying to change? Obviously, you want to look for a good investment industry, or you know, people talk about recession resilience and all this sort of stuff. But what you're trying to say is, it just time at the wicket. Like, and I'm I'm using a, a cricket term for for those yep, yep. for those Commonwealthers. Um, but yeah, t- time at the wicket. You know, that, that that's really just it. Exactly, and and really long time at the wicket where you're not messing with anything. You could right. view it as when you mess with things, that's when you're going to knock knock it off and lose. So mm. um, recessions come and go. The problem is we're bad at forecasting them. What's the, the, the joke? Um, economists have predicted 17 out of the last nine recessions. <laughs> like we, we're, tra- we're, we're trained, we're coded from an evolutionary perspective to see patterns where they simply don't exist. And so where do you start the, the, um, the key piece is what's your sort of horizon and people talk a lot about your risk tolerance. What that really means is practically speaking, are you going to do something stupid like selling in the middle of a, uh, in, in a panic in the middle of a meltdown? And it's not about how smart you are. I've worked with investors um, who are not the, the, the sharpest people you've ever met. There was one person I, I, I was advising just uh, ad hoc for free. Uh, basically a friend, and found out that she had never sold during the uh, dot-com meltdown and never sold during the 0809. And she had a great portfolio, and she had terrific risk tolerance as proven, not that she knew about risk, but that she had never done anything and was basically mm. well-schooled in the, no, you know, stocks are for the long term. So ironically, it's the behavior, not the clever research and insights. One of the other things that's counterintuitive and shocking about my approach is the amount of time it takes. I, I'd say you can be, be an excellent investor and spend an hour and a half every three years. Once, once you get it set up, it can take a little time to figure out who you are. Back, back to the, where do I start? So the first thing you figure out is your time horizon with the general rule that the longer the horizon, um, the less likelihood you have of losing money. 
Uh, that's true for, for very risky assets. And also, can you ride through downturns? And if then you build your your what's usually called an asset allocation, just in simple terms for US investors, let's call it, okay, how much you got in stocks and how much you got in safer assets like bonds or cash. And the longer your horizon, typically the higher your stock. So someone rather young might be even as high as 80, 90% stock. That's fine as long as you can ride that through. Like that can go down 50%. Anyone who says the market just went down 50%, that's not supposed to happen. You shouldn't have been in stocks because that mm. is it's going to happen. Not very often, but we've but seen it, it happen. twice in the last 25 years. So then once you've picked your asset allocation, which is, asset allocation, which is typically going to be for someone older and more conservative, might be like 50-50 and very young and aggressive might be as high as, say, 80 stocks or even 90 and a little bit of cash um, or, or bonds. And then just buy a few index funds to cover the entire world capital markets and maybe one or two bond funds and you're done. Just don't ever tweak it. I mean, you can rebalance like, okay, I started, it's, I, I'm targeting 70-30 and now stocks have gone down so much. I'm at 50-50. Yeah, you need to bring it back. And like, But don't tweak it based on what's going on. That's where you get into trouble. That's where you get into the illusion of control. And that's pretty much it. And that sounds so lame. And the investment industry knows that research of how much better you do with that. But the common refrain for wealth advisors is, well, everybody knows you can't beat index funds, but you can't make any money selling those things because right. why do they need me? And that's a little unfair because individuals do need help on certain financial issues. It's like setting up a portfolio, I, I just described it. Yeah, it sounds simple, but it can be intimidating. And and questions pop up like people have, I have an inheritance coming. How should I work that into my portfolio? I've got a uh, a, a government pension. How do I like? There are issues where some expertise can help. The the part that so bothers me though is this idea of I want someone who understands financial markets to be managing my money. You're already in trouble because why? You don't know what's going to happen. Why do you want to pay a lot of money to someone else who also doesn't know what's happening? And that's the research people don't like looking at. It, is as a profession, we're bad at predicting things. Not everybody, but definitely on average you look at the dollar weights of all the assets for active we're terrible at it and yet mm. people still long for that because it sounds so cool to, to beat everyone else and to beat the market. for those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to readgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you'll automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to readgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. Right. No, I completely agree. And I think it's, it's we focus on uh, here at RSM Property Group on, on physical assets of real estate. And you know, we, we, we have the, the pitch to investors. We can control, you know, renovations and those renovations can control how much rent there is and, you know, yada, yada, yada. You can yep, increase yep. the you can increase the NOI. So we're in control, yep. control, control, control. It's yep. a physical asset. But yeah, if you, you, you bit, and then that's what we pitch to our passive investors. Like, hey, come and invest with us because we, 
know what we're doing and we you know we, we tend to know what we're doing you know but but there's also times where as investors you you know we can't always time markets right the one the big thing exactly. that we we can't control yep. Yep. as much as we can control rents and, and and expenses and you know hire and fire property managers the market's going to be the market and i think yep. that's yep. the tough part that we all have to put our sort of ego aside yep and 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 sometimes you say, yeah, we we, we fucked up, <laughs> you know, or, yep. you know, not that we have fucked up, but but yep. like look at SVB, right? They yep. Yep. they might have just made a bad decision, right? Yep. And, and, and real estate is a little different because individual properties may have different characteristics, and I haven't seen the the, the track record for the industry, like uh, for stock investing, that if you're going to buy individual properties, there that there may be a skill set there. The skill set does not exist. Or sorry, I shouldn't say it doesn't exist. On average, the skill set does not exist for stock picking. So mm. that's the case where instead of picking stocks, uh, individual stocks, you pick all stocks. You invest in world capital. That's why I recommend which index fund? The broadest possible, by global capitalism. Uh, before this recent meltdown, I think it was at around $90, 95000000000000 trillion of value. Just, you can own that in one index fund and then you're done that's the part that's so disturbing for the investment industry is uh, then people aren't going to need to come back right and the getting paid for either picking what's going to beat the 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 market or getting paid to try and time the market is not justified by our track record but the industry does not like people finding out about how bad our track record is. It's right. very well documented. This is not controversial stuff. I mean, it's controversial in that people aren't happy about it. It's not controversial in that academics all understand this very well. So as individuals, how do we change our own mindset? And it seems like we spoke, we, we, we're poking fun at woo-wooism, yep, yep. Um, but like being self-aware, right? Yep, I think that's, yep, exactly. that's, where it, that's where it starts. Right? Yeah, and, and uh, th this is... A growing awareness because behavioral finance, even as an academic discipline, 25 years ago was dismissed as something woo, -woo and people are winning Nobel prizes. It's a it's a big deal now. Um, so, the behavior question you could well ask: Well, if if we're eating too much unhealthy food, what are we supposed to do? That's a hard question. If and and one thing I would say, one of the things I recommend in the book is. If you're considering hiring a wealth advisor to, to do your overall uh, asset allocation, your overall financial picture, try and think of the, 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 the services you need. And there's a valuable service that advisors will tell you they provide, and I don't think they're, they're being dishonest on that one, which is we help people stay on course and not freak out. And if you are someone who might, panic and sell out, then an advisor can actually be worthwhile and affect like, uh, uh, you know, protect, uh, keep me from, from doing myself harm. And, and you see that in, you know, trainers help improve people's physical attributes. Uh, you, you know, uh, there are programs like Weight Watchers. I, I understand they use a lot of kind of group support. So think about the psychology first and the analysis second. And if you are someone who's relatively distant. Like, for example, if you've never sold and you're old enough to have been in real meltdown markets like the 0809 one, that's a pretty good proof that 
You don't need that handholding. And then you can go to, well, I want them to pick the ones that are going to outperform. That's not warranted. They don't, they're not earning their fees. We don't earn our fees on that on average. Um, so it depends who you are in terms of what kind of help you need. I think it's very appropriate to be open to needing help. I'm not saying everyone should do it yourself. That's that's going too far, but go in with open eyes around the 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 real value wealth advisors can add, but also be very aware of they're not wizards with crystal ball. I mean, they claim to be, but <laughs> they don't have that skill. One of the analogies I use, in fact, I did a little uh, animated video you can see on my website from The Wizard of Oz, where the iconic scene at the end when uh, our hero Toto pulls back the curtain, right? And and every, it's, you know, it's part of now modern American English usage. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And in, the, in my uh, uh, little video of it, the advisor is saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And, and Dorothy goes over and scolds him. And in the movie, she says, you're a very bad man. And he says, no, I'm not a bad man. And I'm just a bad wizard. And then he actually is very helpful as a kind of counselor or coach or not quite therapist, but almost to the scarecrow, tin man and, and the cowardly lion. And similarly, an advisor can actually help as a coach, as an advisory role, as long as the crystal ball bogus thing is not going to come into play, like that wizard does not have the ability to look into the future. I know it makes you feel better as a client of mine to think I've got that skill, but I don't. And and the data are so clear that we just don't have that skill. Well, and I think what you're also is trying to say is setting expectations on the front end, right? If you're yes. going into Perfect. something that you're like, I want to flip my money and make a dollar quick. Well, yes. you're then gonna then you're gonna want to have a crystal ball or, or give your money to everyone whoever says they've got the crystal ball you're gonna give it to them. It's it's about the setting the expectation on the front end because one of the things that I I talk a lot about on this show and it's definitely come up again and again and again particularly even in the real estate space the flipping yep. you know historically in the commercial real estate space we, your people have flipped multifamily in three years and doubled people's money. And it's like, wow, look at me, I'm a wizard, to your point. And it's not necessarily the wizard. It's obviously the market is just doing really, well, really, really well. Yep. Historically, real estate has been, like stocks, long-term investments, yep. right? And I come from a country where if you double your money in 10 years, you're doing freaking well, right? That's a good yep. average return on investments where yep. in my world, I've seen people like, well, this is not a high enough IRR and you know, I want to double my money in three years. Like, well, that... You're in the wrong sport. <laughs> well, I, the, the thing this is back to the 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 men and women difference. If it, it depends on, um, I used to actually war game a lot when I was in high school, and they always had victory conditions. And it depends what your victory conditions are. Back to your your um, expectations. Let's say you're in a room of a hundred people. Uh, the overconfidence folks might say, winning at the investment game means you look around that room and you aspire to. I want to be number one. Anything else is not going to work. If you want to be number one in that room, let's say for a whatever, a 10-year holding period, if you want to be number one, indexing is a dumb approach. You're not going to be number one. Some crazy outlier that's going to come through is going to win. Now, you don't, you don't know which it's going to be in advance. If your goal is, I want the highest expected return based on the math, I want to have the best retirement, then you go with this indexing approach. 
Mm. So if you define winning as beating everyone else around you, then indexing is not the right play. If you define it as, I want the best chance of the best retirement, whatever you're saving for next generation, whatever it is, then you go with the indexing. So uh, the expectations management uh, matters a lot, as does that time run. So in real estate, I haven't seen data if that flipping mindset gets you in trouble the way it does with stocks. Flipping stocks, the data are very clear that on average people do bad. One of the great statistics I've seen is um, in 401k plans, they have things called uh, personal choice uh, retirement accounts is one of the names where you can do your own trading. And I I think the reason the numbers are even worse than regular act. It's something like nine out of ten players in that game underperform, and it gets even worse when they're very well educated people like engineers, because the <laughs> overconfidence part kicks in. And someone listening to that with the over who's susceptible to the overconfidence was, yeah, Patrick, I get it, absolutely everything you're saying, I understand completely, but I'm not average, right. And the problem is you can either aim for like, uh, you know, beating everyone else. The, the statistic on uh, 15 years returns for uh, mutual funds beating the S&P 500, it's about 85% fail to beat that benchmark. So on a pre-tax basis, you could say, and, and after tax, it might be 95%. It's just, it, it's horrifically uh, awful odds if you're a taxable investor and you're trying to beat the market. Um, so in effect, you have a choice of, do you want to be number one or do you want to take the, 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 the 90th percentile sure bet that you'll beat all those active managers and people like the thrill. I want to go for the 10%, even though on average, uh, if you throw in like fees and taxes and you hire a wealth advisor, like over a 30 year period, you'll have less than half as much money as the boring approach and and the the data are so clear but the 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 boring part is so clear too it's like well that's no fun no this is not fun it's about and, about wealth and i think it's also about understanding diversification right because you can have parts of your portfolio that gives you the thrills and gives you the sure. the, the, the sure. scratch right as, like, long as, as long as it's small enough Correct. You're, oh, right. yeah. you're not. You're not. You're not going to sink the ship by exactly. having sure. you know, firing a few you're, shots you're, over. You're play over, money. Over. You're mad money. Yeah. Right. 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 So I think that comes down to understanding diversification across entire portfolios. Not just I'm heavily focused in real estate, but I don't know anything about the stock market. Right. I yep. I, I don't have anything in the stock market. But should I? And you know, from a from a wealth perspective, you know, from my family, and th- there's arguments to all of that sort of stuff. And I've always been a very yep. big believer of diversification. Yep. And and I passively invest with other operators who I think are very very good operators in the real estate space because I want to diversify away from my own. Yep. You know, potential stupidity or whatever you want yep. to talk about it. So, I, but but I do think it's also Patrick. It, you know, it sounds like it comes down to a lot of self bloody awareness, right? Go go, yep. go take a couple of meditation classes and start to realize <laughs> that you're not you, you're not the biggest thing and since or you're not the best thing since sliced bread, and and understand that we are human and 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 change that mindset because when yep. you change that mindset and you approach something from a starting gate that is different to say I want to get my money double in five yep. two or yep. three years. Yep. Then you're probably going to have more likelihood of success to stay the course, which exactly. may not sound se- sexy, right? But you, you then you know, those, those peaks and troughs start to, to to smooth out. 
and 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 you need to be very clear how painful those troughs are. Like I'm I'm I don't claim you you can transcend your human emotions. I mean, I get really upset and unhappy in the middle of meltdowns. In fact, I had somebody ask me. Um, I think it was near the very bottom, which was what March of uh, uh, 2009. At one point, the U.S. market was down 52%. And a, a client asked me, have you sold any of your stocks? And I said, no. And he said, oh, so you're disciplined. I said, I'm just as tempted as you are. And I was embarrassed. I confessed. You know, the real reason I didn't sell is because I've been preaching this stuff for so long mm -hmm. that the hypocrisy would have been so painful to look in the mirror like, you're just as big a fraud as all these people you're mm -hmm. like that was what kept me in line more than i understand risk read I, I'm, I'm really on top of this and various mm -hmm. things. no i'm a human like everybody else i i panic and freak out and get really unhappy it, you, you can't transcend the the crushing disappointment of big losses but you can commit in advance to um Staying the course, I, I've heard of a technique, I don't know how widely practiced it is, of um, write yourself a letter. Dear future read, you're in the middle of an incredible, let's call it in your world, an incredible real estate meltdown, like maybe the one in 08. And you're just feeling like your life may be, like this is a disaster. Remember that you knew this was going to come at some point and that you got into this with this long-term horizon and you knew there was going to be a price to pay for that long-term horizon because you you get paid by markets, real estate or stock. You get paid for the strength of your stomach lining. Well, it's time to pony up and you have to pay with this suffering and I can't make your suffering less. You're going to feel really bad, future, future me, but um, please remember not to do anything stupid and just ride through it. And I find that a, a fun exercise to avoid the kind of, how could this happen? And you, you see that in the press, someone in the, after the 0809 meltdown, I remember one uh, well-known columnist wrote, well, we all know buy and hold is dead. And I was just laughing. It's like, what are you talking about? No, we're in a really bad time. And there's, there's also something called the recency bias. Emotionally, we're very driven by about the last six months. And so the problem is you need to take like a, uh, if you're young, like a 70 year time horizon. And that's just, that's very counterintuitive. I've read um, that uh, like geology experts say, it's really hard to explain to people the movement of rock and masses when you're dealing with maybe tens of millions of years, because the average human life expectancy is, I don't know what it is now, 75, 80 years globally. It's like, it's not, it's not this long thing. And if you've got a geologic perspective, similar, you know, apply that to, I want to flip my money. You're basically signing up for the odds heavily stacked against you, like in a Vegas casino where, the odds are stacked against you. Actually, you're a little better off in some Vegas game. I'm not sure what it is. Is it blackjack? blackjack. Is it some of the best has some of the best odds. But you're still, you know, your expected return for playing blackjack is something like negative 0.75% or negative 1%. That's pretty close to what active investing. It's like you're going to have a one, maybe 2% penalty for trying to beat the market, which just sounds so wrong. Wait a minute. By trying to 
win, I'm going to lose. Yeah, that's that's the pair. That's why it sounds like a Zen lesson. But how many Zen lessons, which might tell you that you know money is a a, a distraction from real life and and you're too attached to it, and it's unhealthy. This Zen message is you're actually going to be wealthier, and and I've got the data to show it. Yeah, right. That's I love it. I love it, man. I could continue talking to you for for <laughs> hours on end. But I tell you what, you know, one thing I'll end with is just you know we we won't die. We won't die not trying. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're all that. And I think the one thing you're missing out here is wisdom, right? You mentioned gray yep. hair earlier, yeah, and, yeah. and you you've had the ability to have time at the crease at the wicket to to understand this and look at data and and expect. We all want to. We can all be told it, but it's like thanks a lot, Patrick. Thanks a lot, Reed. I'm going to go out and try it for myself, and then in 20 years' time, exactly. oh, I, probably, I probably should have listened back. You know, but yeah, that's just human nature, as you said. And so I think if you take that factor in and understand that as you're investing. Um, and one thing I do want to make sure we're, we're really key is that education is still super important, right? It's, it, it, it doesn't, an education around what you're investing in, like, you know, coming investing in real estate or investing in stocks or investing in, you know, startups. Like, it does matter to, to, to an extent if you're taking that part of your portfolio because education doesn't, if you don't know what a PL is, go find out what a PL is, right? But the, the, you don't need a PL, you, you don't need to know what a PL is to invest in the entire stock market. And to leave your money there and never sell. So I'm a big fan of of understanding better, but the problem is deeper understanding often brings with it that overconfidence. Mm, and true. what I've seen in the data is people who know nothing about stocks can do very well because of their behavior, mm. their discipline, and the 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 danger the ignorance. Is that, yeah, well, <laughs> it, it's a it's a healthy ignorance. And back to your point of of. But you need a little carve out, you know, fun play, uh, and and I, I a part of your portfolio. And I actually talked to one advisor who tried to persuade me. I think many investors are better off if you include that because otherwise you're just telling them to eat a lot of broccoli and they're not going to do it. Right. And I, well, that's right. that's an interesting angle. I was actually fairly persuaded. So. Yeah. No, that's why it's called a cheat day where you can go out and have a few yes, beers. Yes, exactly. And, exactly. And, Good analogy. Yeah, you, you need you need. You get it, to so. eat the chocolate cake. Yeah. Have exactly. fun sometimes. Well, look, Patrick, at the end of every show, I like to dive in the top five investing tips. You ready to get okay. into it? Uh, sure. You may not like my answers. No. <laughs> well, question number one is, what is a daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I have a real gratitude practice of like of deeply concentrating on how much of my good fortune came from luck and other people, not me. Yeah, I think being uh, being being grateful Gratitude. every single is is, yeah. is really really important. That's awesome. Question number two is in who what uh, who has been the most influential person in your career to date? My co-founder of Aperio, just because he had such a different mindset, fellow named Paul Soli, um, and it was such a great lesson to learn how much better, uh, you know, that idea of synergy. Because without me, he was lame, and without him, I was lame. Mm. But man, that was a and that was. That was an incredible lesson. Yep. I love it. Question number three is, what's the most influential tool in your business? Now, when I say tool, it could be a physical yep. tool, like a journal or a cell phone, or it's a piece of software that you just can't run the business without. What is it? Well, in the firm we built, we 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 built a factory. I mean, I built the first version of it, and people were would be impressed with like the proprietary software which was fancy, but it was actually plumbing. It wasn't like fancy risk model. So on that, I would say, don't underestimate the importance of, of uh, boring 
tools or or, uh, or model. techniques or model. I actually just read a great book about the Second World War that said there were some really minor inventions that had incredible impact. And they don't, again, they don't sound sexy, but you don't make movies about them, but right. like, but they can help, uh, you know, swing things. So right. simple Quite is not cool. all bad. Question number four is in yep. one sentence, what's been the biggest failure you've incurred in your career? What did you learn from that failure? I would say um, um, a, the, the, one of the bigger failures was a, a cybersecurity ignorance on my part. And the which and it was my fault. I was the CEO. I messed up by not investing enough in that. And the lesson was uh, always be wary of your blind spots and use other people to help highlight your blinds because you're not going to be able to see them. And back to that humility, it's it's a weird concept of how humility makes you richer, but humility in business is a really valuable skill. You And you need drive, especially if you're an entrepreneur, you need a lot of passion and optimism to get you to do things, but not optimism in terms of making decisions. So that that was uh, that was a really embarrassing shame. We came through it just fine, but um, it was a number of years ago. But uh, boy, was it a wake up call on uh, uh, not so much arrogance, but the lack of humility in terms of not listening to dangers out there. Mm, interesting. Last question: Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? So my website, uh, patrickgettis.co, has um, a bunch of videos. There's an online version, an online class version of the book. You can buy that. There, but the, uh, the book itself is available at, at, at bookstores, uh, at online stores. Uh, you can get uh, electronic versions for very low cost. Uh, that's, uh, that's how to uh, try and join the movement. Awesome stuff, my friend. Look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show. I think, you know, the the psychology of investing is so true that we can talk ourselves into anything, both good and bad, and ego plays a massive role in how we control things. And I think it's important to understand that that markets will be the markets, right? And and you can't control it. You can't control everything. And sometimes taking that longer approach is the best way and having we talk about time at the crease, but patience, it's not sexy. It's not It's not going to give you a massive big gold star and make you talk awesome around the water cooler, but it's going to keep you there for the long term. And and, and the data does show. So I, I really, really timely episode when, when we're having a bit of a banking crisis right now and everyone's, you know, the cracks are starting to form. So um, I want to thank you again. Did I leave anything out there? No, that, that, was, that was very well articulated. And that, that humility doesn't mean you know things will get better. Like this banking crisis could be a little blip and we've seen the bottom or we could be just at the beginning of a free fall. Who knows? Right. Who knows? And that's Who knows? Because no one has a crystal ball. Right. And no, that was very, uh, very well uh, captured. Well, thank you again so much for t- coming on today's show. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Patrick. Please remember to head over to Patrick Geddes, G-E-D-D-E-S, 
to check out his book, get your hands on all the information that he has over there, what he is doing. Really, really interesting stuff. I'm definitely going to get my hands on a copy because it is all about mindset. It's all about us as humans and the psychology around it and how we approach investing. So super, super awesome episode. Again, thank you all again for jumping on today's show to, to learn about increasing your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. The easiest way to give back to the show is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. And we're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Thank you.